astute observers of uh, the bridge will notice that whenever it's a really difficult subject, <laughs> I get a phone call or a text. Dave. So <clears throat> I was overjoyed at the thought we'd be here for a couple of days. We'd meet with some people. And then the subject line popped up. Why does a good God allow suffering? So <clears throat> I, I want to come to this with a degree of humility, but also a degree of passion. Uh, to not let this be a subject where we simply say, it's a mystery, I don't know. Because actually, uh, there's a lot about it that's not a mystery, uh, and there's some things that we need to really clarify in our minds. But one of the things that we need to do first uh, is to understand how we know what we know. Because if we're going to wrestle with big uh, intellectual, spiritual questions, we have to understand how we know what we know. I, I meet people sometimes and they believe that what they know is entirely coming from some kind of spiritual revelation uh, or their feelings. I meet other people and they will net you, not let you stray beyond uh, the paper uh, book of the Bible. Um, and they won't uh, engage with the wider spiritual life that we all experience. And so we have to establish what it is that helps us know what we know if we're going to tackle doubt. We can't go to doubt on, on a sort of the, the, the kind of thing that I would have had when I was growing up, where if you expressed a, a problem with some aspect uh, of the Christian life, people would say, well, some of these things are just a mystery, and you just have to believe and push on through. And the world is littered with young people who walked away from church because nobody would talk to them about the hard questions of life. And the bridge is not going to be one of those churches where we uh, stop people's mouth when they have a hard question. One of the things that really helped me as I was growing up, I went to a Christian retreat centre uh, where over the meals you could just ask the hardest questions. Um, and the people there were not like, oh, I can't believe you just said that. Um, they engaged with it. And we as a congregation need to engage with it. So how do we know what we know? Well, there is an element uh, of, of the mystical and the spiritual. Uh, God reveals himself uh, to us. And he reveals himself to us through the Bible, through song, through prayer, through conversation. Uh, through uh, his glory declared in nature. There are many, many ways that God shows himself to us. Many of us uh, will have uh, intuitions or thoughts, uh, whole sentences, dreams, visions. These are all revelatory things that God gives to us. And when we uh, study the Bible closely, it tells us to weigh those revelatory things in the light of what God has already said uh, so that we can discern when we have heard from our own flesh and our own desires and when we have truly heard uh, from God and there will be times in all your lives when you will know something about a situation that you could not have known in the natural and God will have dropped that piece of information uh, into uh, your mind and your life and then you check it, you weigh it you know, uh, if God says to you that such and such a person is in adultery, do not stride up to them and say, God's just told me. Because if you are wrong, then 
God's going to look foolish and so are you. But you might sit with that person and say, is everything all right? Is there, you know, is there a strain or a stress in your marriage? There are ways to explore what we believe God might have said. So the other thing that we use to check the revelation is the salvation story. God has spoken uh, through the storytelling that we find in the scripture. And it starts at Genesis and it starts in a place of goodness and a, a place of completeness, a place of wholeness. And then rebellion enters in and sin enters the world. People make a bad choice. And ever since then, God has been bending the story back towards that point when Eden will be restored. When there will be a new heaven and a new earth. And he has seen our suffering from that moment of fallenness and has constantly sought to bring wholeness to us, which will culminate in his return and will culminate uh, now in our everyday reality in the restoration of the brokenness that many of us experience. We never want to downplay suffering. We never want to uh, uh, give you trite, uh, glib easy answers but we also want to believe that the God who saw us fall will lift us up um, and restore us and the Bible is that story and the Bible is what we weigh things uh, against when we read the scripture we uh, begin to have a, a situation where the patterns of our thinking are renewed and as you come to this doubt issue One of the uh, things about doubt and suffering and so on is that we need to have a pattern of thinking that is faithful to the biblical story, which will help us respond. Classic story there is Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego. They are with Daniel. They're serving in the court of a foreign king. He erects an idol uh, at the behest of his uh, um, servants And he commands everybody to bow to it, and they won't. Uh, And he calls them in, and uh, the answer he gives, the answer they give him makes him so angry, he gets the fire turned up. And Shadrach says to him, we will never bow to that idol. Our God will come to our aid, and even if he doesn't, we will not bow to that idol. And so our approach to suffering uh, is slightly tempered with uh, this understanding that sometimes God comes to our rescue, but sometimes that's not how the situation works out. But that doesn't change the reality of who God is, what he did through Jesus, and what he's doing now. Look at Peter uh, and some of the early apostles. God came and he took them out of the jail. He opened the doors. He rescued them. Uh, An earthquake came in Philippi. But both of them went to the cross. St. Peter upside down according to legend. So they knew moments of great liberation and moments of great suffering. And often in our lives we have to walk those two things alongside each other. But it's the patterns of our thinking, the way that we think about God, Jesus and the Holy Spirit that will guide us. The other thing that really helps us is the wisdom of our community. I have a a man that I have some dealings with 
and he spends an incredible amount of time on the internet. And so about every six weeks, he comes to me and says, this looks really good. And I, I, I look it up in Wikipedia, and I say, um, that's an ancient heresy. It's only been around for the last 200 years. It's not actually what the whole church believes. And I sort of calm him down and, and say, so come to Life Group and come on a Sunday. Do not worship at the church of YouTube. Worship at the church uh, of Jesus Christ. Um, not to say you don't see some good stuff on YouTube, but... Um, so we need the wisdom of community. And by that, I don't mean chat rooms. Uh, those are not bad things uh, in themselves. But actually, it's the wisdom of face-to-face relational connection and the trust that we have in each other, which is part of our restoration. That then leads us on to say, how are we going to worship God? And it's important to understand that we worship God with our minds. God has given us minds we can reason. He, uh, people say, oh fleshly worldly reason there is a biblical reason that's rooted in a proper understanding of creation fall uh, restoration redemption and all of those things god didn't give us a mind to neglect Uh, he didn't want us to live on our emotions all the time i often say we value our feelings but we live by our values sometimes in church life it's all about how we feel that day I used to worship in a church where we were there for three and a half hours. And if we didn't have 20 people in the ministry line, it was a bad Sunday. And, um, but I was uh, trying to counsel these people and, and they were just saying, I'm going to go out for ministry. I'm going to go out for ministry. And, and I'm saying, to them, you need to stop sinning. Uh, and you need to give up that habit and you need to get over that. And you need to you know, stop sleeping with that woman or whatever it is. They needed to stop. But it was all about their feelings. Oh, you know, I just, uh, I feel like God touched me. And I'm saying, well, be renewed in the patterns of your thinking then. Think differently. And so alongside our feelings, which we do value, we're not despising them. We need to live by our values. We need an attitude of mind that comes from following uh, Christ. Romans 15 verse 5 reminds us of that. God has given us a capacity to reason. So we look for that which is coherent, plausible and credible. That then leads us to ask, is doubt okay? In the culture I grew up in, uh, quite often it wasn't okay. Um, And uh, you felt like a pariah if you asked a difficult question. We need a culture where it's okay to be doubting. And one of the reasons that we do that is because Jesus was surrounded by doubters. Not only the ones that opposed him, but the ones that were with him. So Thomas, after the resurrection, is like, I'm not sure I believe this. You know, a couple of guys on the road to Emmaus and some women disciples and some guys who were just like totally stressed out and run down there. I mean, you know, who are these people? And Jesus said, come and touch the palms of my hands. And then after the resurrection, many saw him, but some of them still fell away. They'd seen the resurrected Jesus, but he wasn't the Jesus that they'd wanted. They'd wanted the one that would conquer the Romans. And so when people started spreading rumours that the disciples had rolled away the stone, these other guys said, he wasn't the one we wanted. I'm not sure about all of this. And they walked away. We see doubt uh, in the scripture. We see doubt in the book of Psalms. 
Psalms is the doubting songbook because parts of it are glorious and beautiful and poetic and parts of it are like, how much longer is this going to go on? Read Psalm 13 and imagine it's kind of like a big blues number, you know. How much longer? How much longer? And then towards the end he says, but I will put my hope in you. And so one of the keys for us when we're looking at doubt and suffering and so on is to uh, genuinely acknowledge something bad is happening. I I, I cannot be blamed for grieving. But will I stay in my grief? What does God have for me as I come out of this? And and this was the story uh, of the early church. Doubt causes us to examine our beliefs and will often deepen faith. Let me read that sentence again. Doubt causes us to examine our beliefs and will often deepen faith. Think of a, a thing in your life where you have studied something because you couldn't really understand it. And now you have a much richer, deeper knowledge of that thing. And it was because you were puzzled that you went and explored it. We need to do that. Now, the Berean Jews were of more noble character than those in Thessalonica, for they received the message with great eagerness and examined the scriptures every day to see if what Paul said was true. They were professional doubters. This apostle guy was running around, you know, preaching all this new and innovative stuff. And so instead of going, I like, I like, his, I like his aura, you know, uh, you know, he's quite convincing, let's go for it. They were like, well, I'm quite impressed with this guy, but let's just check. Acts 17, verse 11. So, is doubt okay? Of course it's okay. Now, as we come to suffering, we then have to ask ourselves, where do we start from? How will our framing of who God is affect our understanding of suffering? One of the challenges that we have quite often is that many of us have grown up uh, with a faith that is centred around our sin and his salvation and avoidance of eternal judgment. And it crowds our horizon all the time. And we've also been brought up around a bit of perfectionism. And so when we mess up, we're like, oh, I'm not worthy. Oh, I can't do this. And I only say that because that was me. I was at 25 and I'm thinking, this is depressing. You know, I want to follow Jesus, but surely I'm not going to be this miserable for the next 40 years. Maybe 50 years. And I had to kind of covenant with myself that I was going to seek to understand my faith more. And I sat on a train one day and I read chapter 7 of a book called The Dynamics of Spiritual Renewal. And I read the paragraph about what had happened at the cross. Something I had intellectually comprehended a long time before, but had not comprehended with my heart. And I comprehended it with my heart that day on the train. And I stepped off the train a different person. A different person because I had an understanding of who I was, how much I'd been forgiven and what God's purpose for me was. And that I was going to move from fear and guilt to awe and wonder. And in that place of awe and wonder, I was going to serve him because his message was glorious and wonderful and beautiful and creative and artistic and everything else. Because that's where you start with discipleship. And that's where you start with uh, dealing with doubt. 
Have you got an angry God? Or have you got a slow to anger God? Who loves mercy, acts justly and wants to walk with us in our humble servanthood. Faith is a partnership with God. If, if all you ever see is an angry God, then you're just going to feel like you're never up to it. If you see a slow to anger God, Psalm 103, who wants us to love mercy, act justly and walk with him, Micah 6 verse 8, then you're framing your understanding of God in a completely uh, different way. That then brings us to seek an understanding of what suffering is and why it has entered the world. One of the reasons it's entered the world because, is because God, in creating us, did not coerce our love. He gave us free will. And for many, uh, a long time, many people made good choices. But some people also made bad choices, destructive choices. They began to have pride in their own ego and intellect. And then they began... Uh, to act in destructive ways to others. In Genesis 1 verse 26, it says that we are made in the image of God. And one of the things that's most destructive in the world today is the fact that we treat other people as if they were not made in the image of God. One of the slaughters that took place about 25 years ago was because one group actually believed that the other uh, group were genetically inferior. When we talk about us and them and all this othering that goes on in our society, we are dehumanising people. We are taking away their dignity as people made in the image of God. And that comes right down to homeless people, drug addicts, people with mental health issues. We, we run a lunch and people come in and some of them are just chilled people they enjoy the company, they eat. Some of them are not happy. They're not well. And you sit with them and you talk with them about life and you have conversations that are not about their problems. You treat them as if they've got dignity. You listen seriously to their opinions. And the Holy Spirit starts to do something uh, in them because you are not othering them. Oh dear. Oh, well, it's nice to talk to you. Have a cup of tea. Oh, let's run away. I don't know what to do. I don't know what to say. And God wants us to be a people who look at others in that way. But in granting us free will, and this runs all the way through the scripture. This is not a few verses. There's constant verses about choice. Study to show yourself approved to God. You know, there's verses throughout the New Testament. That choice does not earn us our salvation, but it is given to us as an opportunity to enter into partnership with God. And so when we come to this, we see things like, uh, it says in Joshua, choose this day whom you will serve. And then it refers to the ancestors, but as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. So understanding suffering partly relates to the fact that suffering has come about in the world because free will was given and then abused. How does that actually work? Well, there's two ways that it works. Some of us have an understanding that we have derived from our Christian heritage that God is in control of everything. It might be more accurate to say that God is in control of history 
and that he has a trajectory back towards the new heaven and the new earth and that he is achieving things through Jesus and the church that are part of that and we could spend many an hour talking about the time sequence and what events in the Middle East might mean and all of those things. God is in control of history. But because he has given us free will, he's not necessarily in control of our personal destinies. And for some of you that might be quite, oh, oh, Dave. But actually I believe that's what the Bible says. He does not know what choices you might make, but he's never surprised by them. Some of us spend a huge amount of time introspectively worrying about whether we are doing the will of God. Have we found the right partner yet? Uh, Is this the right job? Maybe I should be in another city. Um, uh, What shall I do uh, today? Has God got a divine appointment for me? And, and, And we're constantly looking at ourselves, where we sit in it all, and God kind of would like to bend down and say, it's fine. Just get on with your life. I will give you opportunities uh, when you're ready. But you don't have to be searching for secrets all the time. God has not got a secret will for you. He has a very plain will for you. Love your neighbour as yourself. Live in the light of the kingdom that he displayed uh, in uh, his life here on earth. Take seriously uh, God's love for creation, humanity... Uh, and his desire for shalom. Luke 10, he sends the disciples out to declare his shalom over the communities that they go to. What does his shalom mean? It's basically us walking into a community and saying, Dear Lord God, would you send wholeness, completeness, tranquility? Would you send uh, a restoration, renewal, prosperity and welfare? We are walking out into the creation with the goodness of God in mind uh, to declare it, live it, uh, and introduce it to people. And one of the things that will happen when we do that is that they will begin to look at their life and go, this is not the life I'm supposed to live. Why, Why am I living in this culture of death that I'm inflicting on myself? Why don't I take hold of life? Is this not the man who said, I came to give you life? and life more abundantly. And so when we live in the light of that, we begin to discover that God has been trying to deal with the problem of suffering from the moment that Adam and Eve rebelled uh, against him. He gave them judges uh, to mediate their disputes. He gave them kings because they wanted kings. He gave them prophets to remind them of the ancient truths of his character. Next time you've got a spare hour, sit down and read Amos or Hosea or Micah and feel that prophetic poetry washing over you, that he wants justice to tumble down like water going over uh, a waterfall. He wants uh, the poor to not have their sandals stolen from them. He doesn't want them to be swindled by uh, bad uh, weights. He wants people to be... I was reading a thing, uh, it might have been in Isaiah 59, but don't quote me on that. And they, they captured all these people and they brought them back to their city and one of the prophets or the priests or whatever came out and said, what are you doing with these people? And they said, well, you know, plunder and people. He says, well, we'll use the plunder to restock the storehouses and all that kind of stuff. 
But these people, and they're going, yeah, well, what's the problem? He said, clothe them now. Give them water now. Give them shelter now. These were the enemies. The Bible says, set a table uh, before your enemies in one of the incidents uh, in the Old Testament. God is always trying to get us to relieve and push back the suffering of others. The entire Bible is built around that narrative. That there is suffering in the world, but we are the people to help uh, break the power of that suffering. We are called to live in the light of his will. Thy kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven. The Lord's Prayer. His kingdom will come, but in the meantime, there is a war for our souls and for the souls uh, of the communities that we live in. What causes suffering? There was an earthquake in Turkey about 15 years ago. And one of our newspapers ran a story on the front page saying, this was not an act of God. And I thought, oh my goodness, this is a big secular newspaper. What's this all about? And they, uh, they said that, you know, literally thousands of people had died because these buildings had collapsed. And they said that... Uh, most of those buildings were built in ways that didn't honour the earthquake code that was in place in that nation and enshrined in the law. So many of these people had died because of the greed uh, or ignorance of others. And so in our culture there will have to be systems of thought, cultural norms or destructive patterns of thinking. I grew up in a community that didn't trust another community who often lived three streets away or in the next district. And you were constantly told that these were bad people. This was not a biblical precept, although it was often surrounded by religious words. And so we need to disrupt the thinking that leads to us having destructive thoughts uh, about others. Another thing that causes suffering is the flesh. The world, the flesh, and the devil. Our selfish personal desires, our rebellion against God the pain of past experience, and our fear of man. There is a sermon in that line, but I'm not going to preach it now. (laughs) Our selfish personal desires, our rebellion against God, the pain of past experience, and our fear of man. How often do we react out of the pain of past experience? What role do our selfish personal desires play in the suffering that we bring upon ourselves by our behaviour? If somebody is uh, routinely promiscuous, they will probably have to take antibiotics to cure whatever it is that they caught from one of their partners. If they are taking a lot of antibiotics over an extended period of time in their 40s, they are much more likely to have cardiovascular events in their 60s. Their selfish choices were partly dealt with, but then catch up with them later. So some of the suffering we experience is a self-inflicted wound because we didn't make wise choices. And one of the great things about discipleship is that it's not about uh, pulling ourselves up by our bootstraps or trying to adjust our will, although we do sometimes have to adjust our will. It's actually about seeking the wisdom of God and taking hold of it and getting it into our patterns of thinking and living in uh, the light of it. And then finally... In this little section, the devil. He promotes death at every turn. He glorifies death. He revels in power. He takes Jesus up to the mountain and says, all this is yours. I'm 
kind of controlling it at the moment, but if you will bow to me, I'll hand it over to you. It's all about power and control and keeping uh, what is yours. And so the devil uh, reinforces the ideas of the world and our fleshly choices. The devil and all his minions. We reap what we sow. But many of us reap what somebody else sowed. And so God wants to come and be with us in that suffering. So we ask ourselves, what is God's response to suffering? What is God's response to suffering? Well, in the scripture, there was a thing called the Jubilee. And it meant that if you lost your land through debt or whatever, you got it back within your family 49 years later. There was a cycle of restoration. The prophetic call to embody justice. Love mercy, act justly, walk humbly with your God. This isn't just a little trite thing that we pray over people. Do you know, whenever some bad stuff happens, politicians will say, we're sending our thoughts and prayers. And God is up in heaven going, enough already with the thoughts and prayers. Send some stuff, pass some laws, do something to stop this carnage. And so... Uh, God wants us to embody his holiness, not merely say, oh, that's terrible, we'll be praying. Prayers without action are empty words. The entire ministry of Jesus was a response to suffering. His multiple healings of people who were deemed sinful because of their illness. When he restored, when, when the woman touched his garment, he made it very public that she had touched his garment and that she was healed, which meant that she could now re-enter the church and not be a marginal person within her own home. There was a complete restoration of who she was. She had not merely stopped bleeding. She was back in society, back in culture, back in relationship, because she'd been considered unclean up to that point. He alleviated her suffering. When he went to the teaching on forgiveness... The reconciliation of families. He alleviated their suffering. Peter said, seven times? He said, no, more like 70 times seven. The protest at the temple was against the ex- about the exploitation of the poor. And so constantly, go to Luke 4 and Matthew 25 when you're not here. Read Luke 4, the passage where Jesus stands up in the, the temple and declares why he's here. I have come to bind up the brokenhearted is one of the things he's saying based on Isaiah 60, which is the passage 61, which he's reading from. Matthew 25 tells a parable and he, in the parable he commends those who have given him water and given him food and clothed him. And they said, when did we ever do that to you? And he said, when you did it to the least of these. The church of God is always about the relief of other people's suffering. And then he promises us his presence. And with this we close. Sometimes God will come to your rescue. Sometimes we will suffer the cruelest, vilest blows. My father had many friends and one of them was sat in his car and somebody came up to the window and shot him in the head in front of his children uh, as part of the conflict in Northern Ireland. He lived and he lives to this day. One of his other friends was stood at a barricade uh, helping do some early morning policing and a sniper's bullet hit him there. My dad had been with him the night before and they'd sung together face to face with Christ my saviour 
the next morning he was face to face with Christ his saviour and one of the reasons that the church has made such an impact over the years is that Christians will walk into the most difficult of situations with no fear, um, with no fear for their life because they believe that we will go to be with the Father. When the worst illnesses have swept Europe, the Christians have stayed and helped people and many more people have survived. But they've done that at the risk of their own lives. And the, the academic books say it's because they believed that they should imitate Jesus and they had no fear of the future because they were going to uh, be reunited with Christ. We will suffer. Paul was flogged and beaten. Tells us in 2 Corinthians 11. Jesus says they'll hate you because of me. But stand firm. As I said earlier, Shadrach said, Your majesty, we will not serve your gods or worship the image of gold. Even if he doesn't help us. Isaiah 43, when you pass through the waters, I'll be with you. When you pass through the rivers, they will not sweep over you. When you walk through the fire, you will not be burned. God is with us. And then finally, we are not alone. Jesus walked where we walk. See, my servant will act wisely. He will be raised and lifted up and highly exalted. Just as there were many who were appalled at him, his appearance was so disfigured beyond that of any human being. And his form marred beyond human likeness. When Christ went to the cross, he was literally broken. And many would have been looking at him and saying, how could this be the king of the world? And, and many of the, the people of his own culture would have been looking at him and saying, it's a curse to be hung on a tree like that. He did not have the appearance of a saviour and a messiah. And in the midst of his suffering, he broke the power of sin and death and hell and he rose to life and he breathed on his disciples and released them to breathe life and speak life and do life uh, uh, right up to this present day which means that uh, as many as uh, 200 people will have sat in this room and in rooms all across Paris rejoicing in who God is and asking him to walk with them through the valley of the shadow of death and wherever their walk takes them whatever suffering they may have to endure however much joy they have in serving him that they will hold those two things uh, in tension knowing that one day there'll be no more tears there'll be no more crying there will be a new heaven on earth uh, a new heaven and earth and that we look to that future and we look to that hope let's pray shall we Father, we thank you that in the middle of our suffering that you never leave us, you never forsake us. God, we thank you that you redeem the pain in our lives. You redeem the suffering in our lives to fulfill your purposes. Father, we know that there are a lot of things that we will never understand as long as we breathe air on this earth. But God, we thank you that we can trust you. We can trust you, Lord. Hey, this is Kelly, lead pastor of the Bridge International Church. We hope you enjoyed this week's message from the Bridge. If you'd like more information about the Bridge, or if you'd like to get in touch with us, visit us at thebridgeparis.com.